programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Most of us take for granted the features of our modern society, from air travel and telecommunications to literacy and obesity. Yet for nearly all of its six million years of existence, human society had none of these things. While the gulf that divides us from our primitive ancestors may seem unbridgeably wide, we can glimpse much of our former lifestyle in those largely traditional societies still or recently in existence. Societies like those of the New Guinea Highlanders remind us that it was only yesterday in evolutionary time when everything changed and we moderns still possess bodies and social practices often better adapted to traditional rather than modern conditions. And my guest today, Jared Diamond, uh, in his new book, The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies? Though he doesn't romanticize tribal societies, he finds that their solutions to universal issues such as child-rearing, elder care, dispute resolution, physical fitness have much to teach us. Jared Diamond is coming to Salt Lake City. His appearance is uh, Thursday evening, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, presented by Salt Lake City Public Library and King's English Bookshop. That appearance is at the uh, Salt Lake Downtown Library. Jared uh, Diamond, uh, formerly... uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, author of Guns, Germs, and Steel. Other books include uh, Collapse, and the new book is World Until Yesterday. And uh, Jared Diamond, welcome to the program. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I wonder if you could begin, perhaps where you begin in the book. I- I'm interested, you have an advantage that many of us do not. You you travel between, frequent travel, between two worlds. Studied the, uh, the the people of uh, New Guinea for over many years. You start the book at an airport. In fact, you end the book at a, at a different airport. <laughs> and and the purpose there, I think, is to maybe give us a little bit of the flavor of traveling between these two worlds. Yes, I've been working in New Guinea for 50 years studying birds. But to do anything in New Guinea, including study, study birds, um, one has to be with New Guineans because they own all the land and they know a lot about birds and they accompany me in the jungle. So in the course of my bird studies, I've learned a lot about New Guineans who, who until recently were traditional small-scale societies without state government. Well, my first visit to New Guinea was in 1964 when the capital at that time, an Australian colony, um, had as an airstrip a two-room wooden building, and there was not a single traffic light in the capital. And But I begin my book with a visit in 2006, when the airport looked like a normal American airport with x-rays and security and police and computers. But the difference was that the destinations and the people there were New Guineans, and that made me realized with a realized with a jolt that in 50 years, um, New Guinea had gone through lots of the changes that in Western industrial society have taken us thousands of years, namely coming into modern travel, state government, wearing clothes, meeting each other comfortably, and all those other changes. So I guess inevitable that uh, when the two societies, two civilizations meet that there'd be changes on both sides, or or, or at least on the side that uh, we, we, I guess, in former times called primitive for the, uh, the more tribal societies. 
That's right. It's most obvious that there have been changes in New Guinea. Once New Guineans, who had been using stone tools and making fires with fire drills and and having even no clothing or bark clothing, once New Guineans encountered the outside world, they saw the advantages of steel tools and mattresses and manufactured clothing and antibiotics and doctors. And so New Guineans have been adopting copiously from the outside world. But my book turns it around and looks at it, looks at what we can learn from New Guineans, what I personally have learned from New Guineans and what other Westerners who've lived in traditional societies like in among Amazonian Indians and Africans have learned from these societies that face universal human issues such as bringing up children and staying healthy and sizing up danger and have come to solutions to these universal problems that in some cases I found useful and that I think our listeners and readers will find useful. And so you're titled The World Until Yesterday. You, you are holding up a mirror uh, in, in effect, um, as I mentioned in the open, um, that for nearly all of six million years of existence, human society didn't have these modern things. That's true. For six million years, uh, so humans, the human line, is, evolutionary line, has been separate from the line of chimpanzees for about six million years. And obviously, for most of that six million years, humans did not have internet, the computers, steel tools, and manufactured um, clothing. But there are other things that we take for granted in the West that humans also didn't have. For example, traditional societies, and this would include Native American traditional societies before European arrival. Traditional societies are small, a few dozen to a few hundred people. When you have such a small society, everybody sits together and reaches decisions and discusses things. There's not a central government. There isn't the opportunity to support a government. And so the idea of government is something that arose within the last 10,000 years. The concept of strangers is new. In a traditional society, you know everybody in your village and you know the people in the next village. You don't encounter strangers, or if there is a stranger, it usually means bad stuff and trouble. Whereas every day, we in the United States encounter hundreds of strangers and we're not scared or freak out. Instead, strangers are an opportunity to sell something and buy something. So there's something that has something that we take for granted, dealing with strangers, that has changed. We'll get into some of the uh, positive lessons that you believe we can learn from traditional societies. Th- there are some things that where we have advanced. We, we think of, we think of a, a linear timeline, don't we? Progress. Uh, and you're, you're sort of bending that a bit. But there are some things, and you write about warfare. That's one example, and, and the, the general question um, of progress and what we have that's advantageous. Um, Let's not get overly romantic. There are, um, just as there have been lots of people in the past who who despised people in traditional societies as primitive barbarians who are to be killed and swept off their land, some people today, well-intentioned, educated people, go to the opposite extreme of idealizing and romanticizing traditional societies 
and regarding them as gentle, friendly, in tune with the environment, paragons of virtue compared to which we Americans are full of vices. And the reality is that traditional societies do or have to do things that we can only say, thank God, we're past that. Traditional societies often, unfortunately, if a baby is born really weak, they have to abandon or kill the baby. In traditional societies where there isn't enough food, sometimes old people are abandoned or actually killed. Um, And so it's not the case that everything is wonderful about traditional societies. That's why I choose to live in California and teach at UCLA and travel to New Guinea rather than choosing to live in New Guinea and travel to California. You set up that uh, you, you, you tread a middle path, as many uh, do, uh, between the two extremes, exterminate versus the idea of the noble savage. You, you outlined that very well in a response to a negative review on, on your website. People could go and, and read that. Um, but uh, I wonder if you could tell us a couple more of the, the, these stories uh, on, in this vein. Um, there's a, a tribe called the Siriono Indians, you mentioned. And you mentioned there's an elderly woman who gets ill, that the tribe has to move on, so they, they leave her. They leave her behind. Yeah, that's a gut-wrenching story. The Siriono, um, S-I-R-I-O-N-O, um, are a group of Native Americans in Bolivia. Um, I have no direct experience of them, but there, there's a good account of them by an anthropologist who lived with them for quite some time. So the Siriono, um, at the time that he was there, were mobile, largely hunter-gatherers, meaning nomadic. They would move every day or every week or so. And if an old person is unable to walk, the remainder of the tribe that has to carry the babies and their personal possessions, it's just impossible to carry the old person. So you leave the old person with food and water and fire in case they recover strength. Well, the anthropologist happened to be in a Siriono band um, at the moment when they were moving on to their next camp, and he saw that there was a sick old woman there whom they were leaving. And he asked what was going to happen. They explained they were just leaving her there. And the anthropologist described how everybody left camp without saying goodbye to the woman, not even her husband said said goodbye to the sick woman, but they just left her lying there. And when the anthropologist came back, because he had to go um, to the hospital to get fixed up, when he came back a few weeks later, he found that the woman was not in that camp. He followed the trail and he found that she had dragged herself to the next camp where she had died and been eaten by vultures. Well, to us, that sounds absolutely terrible. How could you abandon your sick wife or how could you abandon your sick old mother or father. But the cruel reality is that many traditional societies just did not have the food supplies to keep everybody alive under some circumstances and weren't capable of carrying old sick people. So that illustrates how some of the things we do, some of the things they do, we don't want to imitate, but it doesn't mean that they're evil people because they Mm. had to do those things. There's another heart-wrenching example, a Brazilian tribe, I believe. Uh, their their belief is, their custom is, a woman should give birth alone. And that actually is not... You're, you're right. Um, that is the case of the Paraha, P-I-R-A-H-A, 
Indians in Brazil, studied by the missionary linguist, I'm now linguist Daniel Everett, but it's also the case in quite, quite a few other traditional societies that a woman is expected to give birth alone. In many cases, she gives birth assisted by other women, but among the Kung of the Kalahari Desert, a woman was also expected to give birth alone. And a missionary um, colleague of Daniel Everett happened to be there when the Paraha woman was giving birth and was having difficulty and was crying out for help. But the Paraha view is everybody has got to stand on their own legs. And so they didn't help the woman. And she died in childbirth. Well, that's an extreme example of the view that everybody should be self-reliant. But let me immediately add to that, that usually traditional people don't die as a result of being self-reliant. Instead, they learn to be self-reliant, so by the time they're five or ten years old, they can take care of themselves, and by the time they're teenagers, they are self-confident, they can negotiate with adults, and they don't go through the dreadful adolescent crises that we do in the United States because our teenagers acquire the bodies of adults after being micromanaged by their parents and not having acquired the social skills of adults. You write that uh, many traditional societies, um, a baby is in skin-to-skin contact uh, almost constantly with, with its mother. And that continues very, you know, small societies. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at. This is a lesson we can learn about raising children. Yeah, yeah. So here we, we turn to some happy things one can learn from traditional societies, bringing up children. My wife and I were much influenced in bringing up our own kids by what I had seen in New Guinea about bringing up children. Um, skin-to-skin contact is one thing, certainly in a warm climate, um, um, the baby is in skin-to-skin contact, obviously not in the Arctic among the Inuit. Um, but it is true that in most traditional societies, babies are in contact with an adult or a caregiver or an older brother or sister essentially constantly. And so you do not put babies in cribs or in a separate room to sleep at night. There was probably no baby in human history who slept in its own crib or slept in a separate bedroom until the last few thousand years. And that's part of what contributes to babies in traditional societies growing up with a sense of security, because in fact they are secure. If they start crying, they are immediately comforted within a few seconds. There's none of this nonsense in the United States or Europe that you ought to allow a baby to cry itself out and learn to take control of itself and not get attention from the adult until it's been crying for over 30 minutes. Well, I wonder where that came from. Some of these things uh, kind of spring up, and that's maybe a disadvantage of uh, such interconnectedness. Uh, you, you read something on the Internet or you, you hear something and you start adopting it rather than maybe it coming down, you know, proven through traditional um, transmission of learning. That's right. We, we have practices in, the, in our own society, um, some of which really are useful practices and some are not, just as traditional societies. When, when I was growing up in the 1940s and early 1950s in the U.S., it was standard American practice, it was common practice to spank babies, 
it was standard practice for women not to have their own careers. And nowadays, the belief is that, um, increasingly, the belief is that it's bad to spank babies. In fact, if you look at traditional societies, most small-scale traditional societies don't spank babies. In fact, they feel so strongly about it that among the pygmies of the um, African rainforest, if a mother or father strikes a baby, you do it once, and that's grounds for divorce. Well, one can say now that if you want a child to learn to be self-confident and to take charge of itself, the last thing you want to do is to hit babies. What a terrible example. Mm. Of course, you know, and we've cited some negative examples being in the program. You you can have traditions that come down um, which are harmful. Uh, you know, we, we, we mentioned childbirth alone, that, that sort of thing. Let me give you an example of a tradition that I personally consider harmful um, in a traditional society. This tradition was among the Kowlong people of Papua New Guinea. There were about a thousand tribes in Papua New Guinea, and there were two of them, the Kowlong and one neighboring tribe, that had the following tradition until 1957 when it disappeared, discouraged by the government. The tradition was that if a man died, his widow called upon her brothers to come strangle her. It wasn't that they strangled her against her will. She summoned her brothers to come from wherever they were. She sat down on a chair, stool. Her brothers put two ropes around her neck and pulled until she was strangled to death. Well, I can assure you that should I predecease my wife, I hope that my wife, I expect that my wife is not going to call out to her brothers to strangle her. That's a custom that seems to do nobody any good. Um, There isn't any explanation for it. There's not an environmental explanation. It's just one of these things that developed like the French eating frogs and snails, and most Germans and Americans do not eat frogs and snails. It's a custom. And and these these can become very powerful, very and perpetuated generation upon generation. Yeah, and if we if we go back to the ways of bringing up babies today, the spanking or the beating of babies that was customary in my youth, or else the belief that babies, if they start crying, and you check and you see that they're not sick or really in trouble should just be put down and cry and keep crying until they've learned to deal with themselves. That was common 50 years ago, but today it's considered barbaric. And that simply illustrates that it's not just the cow along with strangling widows. It's our own society that does things, that did things that today we feel don't make sense. Although 50 years ago, if you did not spank your baby, you were considered a bad parent. Should uh, should we, as a modern society, should we intervene in, in such cases, strangling of widows? Well, the Australian government of Papua New Guinea did intervene. Um, in general, the Australian government, when it came into New Guinea, um, drew the line of two things. Um, for the most part, it let people continue to live traditionally, but there was two things that the Australians did not tolerate, and that was murder and violence and warfare, and the other thing was cannibalism. So both of those were put down, and the other changes in Papua New Guinea have been largely a matter of New Guineans 
seen what was available, wanting antibiotics, wanting clothing, wanting reliable food supply, wanting education for their children, and hence acquiring selectively from the modern world. Another uh, thing you write about, uh, you know, on the on the bad side of the ledger, um, in some societies, I don't know if it's continuing, infanticide was accepted under some conditions. That's right. Today, fortunately, we don't need to practice infanticide. Um, today, with hospitals and neonatal intensive care units, um, babies who are born with health problems or babies who are born prematurely can be kept alive, and often they can be kept alive and cared for so well that they do not have health problems for the rest of their lives. So, in effect, um, today we're able to rescue babies who can grow up to be healthy people. But in traditional societies, if you're born with a weak baby, um, there is not the medical care available, and the child just wouldn't survive. So the the obligation in some traditional societies that if, if a weak baby is born, then it's the mother's obligation to smother the baby. And again, one can say, how horrible, but reflect, it's not that these are evil people, it's that they don't have any choice because they don't have neonatal intensive care units. We're talking with Jared Diamond. Uh, you uh, recognize uh, the name, of course, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author of uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Collapse, other books. The latest book is The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies? It's uh, been newly released in paperback. Jared Diamond is uh, coming to Utah. Salt Lake City Public Library and the King's English Bookshop uh, present uh, Parents by Jared Diamond uh, Thursday evening at 7 o'clock at the Salt Lake Downtown Library, and that event is free and open to the public. In A World Until Yesterday, uh, Jared Diamond uh, says that uh, while the gulf that divides us from our primitive ancestors may seem unbridgeably wide, we can glimpse much of the former lifestyle. Those largely traditional societies still are recently in existence, and there are some lessons that we can learn. And uh, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, due to Professor Diamond's uh, schedule, uh, this uh, program was recorded yesterday, but you can still respond to the program. We hope that you will. A couple of ways to do that. Uh, first way is on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And several people have already responded. Our thanks to the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, uh, which uh, shared this post, and to Jody Patterson, who also shared this post on uh, Jared Diamond. And uh, our thanks to John Williams, Vivian Ball, um, Rachel Ann Semft, um, Joseph Anderson, uh, Vivian Baji, rather, Rachel Ann Semft and Joseph Anderson and John Williams for liking this post. You can also uh, respond at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More with Jared Diamond following the break. As the Arctic continues to warm, hungry polar bears are showing up in Hudson Bay towns in Canada. The ice is just retreating too far north. Their only real option is to jump off and come ashore. Of course, that puts them around the communities there. And that can spell trouble between great white bears and people. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Coming up next at 10 o'clock. Back with Jared Diamond, 
author most recently of The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies, newly released in paper book. Jared Diamond, of course, is Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, A Collapse, Other Books. Uh, Salt Lake City Public Library and King's English Bookshop are presenting Jared Diamond in appearance uh, Thursday evening at 7 o'clock at the Salt Lake, Salt Lake City Downtown Library, and that's free and open to the uh, public. And uh, we're talking about lessons we can learn from traditional societies. This is a mirror, Jared Diamond says, uh, held up to us. And uh, most of us take for granted features of our modern society, from air travel to telecommunications to literacy and obesity. Yet for nearly all of its six million years of existence, human society had none of these things. And societies like those of New Guinea Highlanders remind us that it was only yesterday, in evolutionary time, when everything changed. We moderns still possess bodies and social practices often better adapted to traditional rather than modern uh, conditions. Uh, Jared Diamond, uh, you write interestingly, and, and there are some <laughs> kind of uh, fun experiences that, that you uh, tell us, that in uh, these traditional societies, loneliness is not a problem. Loneliness is not a problem because people, by and large, don't move or they don't move far. You live out your last years surrounded by your childhood friends and by your relatives and children. In contrast, so I was born and grew up in Boston. I ended up in Los Angeles. Uh, That means that I'm in contact now with two people whom I knew before the age of eight, my sister and one school classmate. Well, by New Guinea standards, that's absolutely incredible. Of course, you're in contact with all your childhood friends. And a consequence is that old people in the United States often end up lonely. In fact, old age is widely considered a disaster area of American life because um, old people not only um, are often removed from their friends and relatives, but American society looks down on old people. We have a cult of youth. We don't recognize the valuable things that old people can do. I mean, they're still the people with the most experience of personal relations. They're the best advisors. They're the best supervisors. They're the best teachers and so on. And yet, despite that, we often still have mandatory retirement. For example, last night I was having dinner with a friend who told me that his wife is looking forward looking forward with horror to mandatory retirement five years from now when she reaches the age of 65, which means that she'll be at the peak of her abilities. So it's bad for American society and it's bad for old people, older people themselves not to have the opportunity of continuing to work if they wish to do so. So you would, you would do away with mandatory retirement? I would ban mandatory retirement, except in cases where there's reason for it. Airplane pilots, I agree that commercial airplane pilots should not be flying at the age of 102. There's a case where it makes sense. But university professors and lawyers and physicians, um, many of them are able to continue. My father was a physician, and Dad saw his last patient at age 93. He had long experience. You wrote an, an op-ed piece for the uh, New York Times, uh, fun fun piece. You say the biggest single lesson you learned from the, the, the New Guinea peoples, risk management, and you, you relate this to shower safety. What if you talk about that a little bit? Risk management, that's a very live subject for me because a few hours ago I did the most dangerous thing that I'm going to do all day today, and that is I took a shower in my hotel room, and this... 
all hotel room showers have their issues, but this one was particularly dangerous because there was no grip bar and there was no rubber mat on the bottom of the shower. Well, I think our listeners may be saying, showers, for heaven's sakes, Jared Diamond, why are you worrying about showers when you should be worrying about terrorists? Your chances of slipping in the shower are just one in 1,000. Yes, and that's precisely why I'm concerned about slipping in the shower. At age 76, I have 15 years of life ahead of life expectancy ahead of me, which means 5,475 showers. And if my risk of slipping in the shower and breaking a leg or killing myself each time are one in 1,000, then I'm going to kill myself five times before I reach my life expectancy, which just illustrates that from working in New Guinea, I've learned from New Guineans to pay attention to what are the real risks in life. And in American life, those are slipping and falling, showers, step ladders, stairs, wet, wet sidewalks, and there, of course, alcohol and driving. And I don't worry about terrorists and plane crashes, which most Americans would say are things that they worry about, but just read the obituary column of any newspaper any day and see how many people have died of terrorists and see in the obituary column and see in contrast how many people have died or been crippled by falling at old age. So relatively low risk in the general, but but which is more likely to to get you than a, than a terrorist. Uh, you you talk a little bit about the dead trees in in New Guinea. The the the, the uh, tribal people refuse to sleep under a dead tree. Yeah, dead trees are instructive because dead trees illustrate an important the important lesson that also is connected with showers, cars, and alcohol. Um, I learned my cautious attitude about showers, not by taking showers with New Guineans, but by camping out in the forest. And one occasion I camped out with them and I I said, let's pitch our tent here and then under a magnificent, huge tree. And the New Guineans got agitated and said, no. What's, I asked, what's the matter? And they said, look, the tree is dead. It might fall over on us, to which my reaction was, that's ridiculous. This tree is going to stand for 50 years, and it's not going to fall over on us tonight. But eventually, as I spent lots of time in New Guinea, every night you sleep out in New Guinea forest, you hear a tree fall down somewhere, and every day you hear somewhere a tree falling down. So if the risk of a tree falling down is just one in 1,000, but if every night you make the mistake of sleeping out under dead trees, then three times 365 in three years, with that risk of one in 1,000 repeated, 1,095 days, you're going to be dead. And that's the spirit in which I'm very careful about showers and stepladders. Each time the risk is low, but if an event which each time has a low risk, you, you're going to do many times, cumulatively, it'll catch up with you. And that's one of the most important lessons I've learned from New Guinea. Do you think that's a function of the society in which they live? They're, you know, they're, they're not as connected, maybe, to, to worry about some of these other things? Um, or, or is there something fundamental, fundamentally human that, that we're missing out on, that we've gotten away from? It, you're right. It is a function of the society in which we live. Um, in the United States, if something goes wrong, we're used to thinking a doctor can fix it. And often a doctor can fix it. 
if you slip in the shower and you break your leg, yes, the doctor can set your leg and your leg may heal, although if you're old, you, your leg may not heal in the rest of your life. Whereas in New Guinea, where traditionally they were not doctors or surgeons, um, if you slipped and you broke a bone, then there was not a doctor to heal it. And in my case, for example, I've broken a leg bone only once in my life. I slipped on the ice crossing Harvard Square in Cambridge, Mass., and broke my foot bone. So what did I do? I stumbled over to a telephone booth, called my father, who was a doctor. He came, picked me up, brought me to the surgeon. The surgeon set my foot, and my foot um, healed properly. So we Americans get used to the the idea that if we make a mistake, it can be fixed, whereas in New Guinea, they know that if they make a mistake, it cannot be fixed. But the fact is that we Americans make lots of mistakes that we cannot fix. We get electrocuted by our kitchen appliances. Um, We slip and break bones, and we get crippled for the rest of our lives. So there's a case in which I've modified my lifestyle from what I've learned by watching New Guineans. We, um, in a certain way, in our very connected, electronically connected world, we're, I think even more divisions come up between us individually. I, uh, I'm i on a university campus. I think you are as well a lot of time. And uh, after class, the, the the students, the first thing that comes out is the smartphone and then their own, their own little world. Um, New Guineans... You say that's that's not a problem, and people talk. People talk incessantly. Yes, that's a big difference, and that's one of the things that makes New Guinea so exciting. Sometimes frustrating, but always always exciting to be in. Uh, the way I think of it is that after you've been to New Guinea, the rest of the world is dull. The, the fact is that when I'm talking with a New Guinean. It's a full attention conversation. My eyes are on him or her. His or her eyes are on me. Um, We're not looking down into our laps to text message. We're not interrupting to turn on the computer. We're not interrupting to see if there's an email. It is full attention conversation, and it's talk, talk, talk all day long. Well, the result of that is that New Guineans get very, very good at reading facial signals and at reading voice signals, and so they are really skilled negotiators. I must say I'm worried with the current generation of not just Americans, but Europeans and Japanese um, getting used to communication, not face-to-face, but first to the telephone where you don't see the person, and now to email and cell phones where you don't see and you don't hear the person, that we're losing the ability to read facial and voice signals, and we're just losing social skills. You also say identity isn't a problem, neither is moral confusion nor boredom in these societies. Boredom isn't a problem because of this constant talk, 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 talk. And let me just tell you one story which sounds like a a funny story, but it brought home to me the significance of talk, talk, talk in New Guinea. So I was struck by the Early on in New Guinea, I was struck by the fact that New Guineans are talking constantly to each other. So early in, I guess, was my first or second year in New Guinea, I was in a um, campsite with some New Guineans, and they spoke a New Guinea language of which I had learned something. So I could hear what and understand what they were saying to each other. 
And they were talking about sweet potatoes. And there was this 45-minute conversation about sweet potatoes, which are the standard food in New Guinea. One was asking the other, how many sweet potatoes did you have in New Guinea and the, for breakfast? And the other said, I had one. Did you have two? And then they said, how many sweet potatoes did the white man, that's me, have for breakfast? Well, how many sweet potatoes? I'm hungry. How many sweet potatoes are there left over there in the, in the corner of our tent? Um, when is the white man going to buy us more sweet potatoes? So the conversation went on and on and on about sweet potatoes. But this is the social glue that holds society together. It means that people are kept current about what other people are doing. They know what everybody else is up to, and they're alert to possible dangers. Um, but they don't have downtime. They're not passively glued in front of a television set not exercising their own social skills. And identity, uh, I guess in a smaller society, you know who you are, you know who you're connected to, you know who the other is. It's very clear. Yeah, in a small society, so identity, you're living in a small society of 200 people. You know every one of those people by name. You know their relatives. You know who was their cross cousin. You know what their grandmother did to your uncle one generation ago. Um, on the one hand, that gives you tremendous social support because you have all these built-in friendships. The downside of it is that you don't have privacy in a traditional society. And so one New Guinea friend of mine um, who in, went out, left New Guinea um, to go to law school and eventually ended up in the United States as New Guinea ambassador here, she said that what she most likes about the United States is occasionally to be, get, to be able to get away from all those wonderful social ties with your 200 dearest friends, to be able to sit um, in a cafe on the sidewalk and read her newspaper without being bothered by someone who comes over and says, I have a problem with you. Will you help me with the problem? So on the one hand, in these small societies, there's the wonderful social support but on the other hand, sometimes we want our own privacy and want to be able to get ahead as individuals. We're talking with Jared Diamond on the program today. Pleased to have him with us. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, the latest book is The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies, newly released in paperback, and uh, he's going to be in Utah Thursday evening at 7 o'clock, an appearance at the Salt Lake Downtown Library, free and open to the public, presented by the Salt Lake City Public Library and King's English Bookshop. Uh, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'll, I'll ask uh, Jared Diamond to uh, talk a bit about dispute resolution. Um, there's a very interesting case uh, in the book um, a, uh, of an accident, and a, and a child is killed. This illustrates uh, how traditional societies have different goals and different methods of resolving disputes than we have in uh, modern societies. You can respond to this Access Utah program with Jared Diamond in a couple of ways. The first way is our uh, email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, which you comment on, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, and that is where Stephen McIntyre comments on the program. He says, one of the great public intellectuals of our age. Also, what a great speaking voice he has. Speaking of Professor Diamond, thanks for that comment, uh, Steve. You can comment as well, Utah Public Radio Facebook page. More following break. Is your car doing strange things? And it's got to finish spinning. 
And you know, there isn't a single piece of the car that does this. <laughs> and that's why we're struggling here. What part of Boston do you live in? Jamaica Plain. Can you get over here in half an hour? <laughs> Every problem may not have a solution, but it's always worth a couple of laughs. Join us this week for Car Talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Jared Diamond. He is a professor of geography at UCLA, author of several best-selling books, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, Collapse is another of his books you'll recognize. The latest is The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies? It's newly released in paperback. And Salt Lake City Public Library and the King's English Bookshop are presenting an appearance by Jared Diamond Thursday evening at 7 at the Salt Lake Downtown Library. That event is free and open to the public. Jared Diamond, dispute resolution. Um, and, and you're saying we can learn some things uh, here. I wonder if you could recount the story that you uh, tell in the book. Uh, a man is driving in New Guinea. He uh, strikes a child, killing him. Um, it, it wasn't necessarily his fault that the child darted out from from behind a bus. When you take it up from there. Sure. Um, this was a, a story that really impressed me in New Guinea and that helped me understand dispute resolution in New Guinea and in other traditional societies. The story involved, um, as you say, a child who was killed by a car in an accident. And in the United States, if a child gets killed by a car, you can be sure that there two things are going to happen. There's going to be a criminal investigation by the police, and there certainly is going to be a civil suit um, by the parents against the driver. And you, you can be certain that the parents and relatives of the child um, are going to be filled with hatred for the driver for the rest of their lives, and then conversely, the driver is going to be filled with feelings of guilt, possibly paralyzing feelings of guilt. Um, That's because the American court system cares about right and wrong and punishment and deterrence and doesn't care at all about emotional reconciliation. In this New Guinea case, in traditional societies, because you're going to have to deal with the people that you have disputes with for the rest of their lives. The emphasis is not on right and wrong, but it's on reconciliation. And so in the case of this car accident in New Guinea, incredibly to us Americans, what happened was that the employer and the fellow employees of the driver, five days after the death of the child, got together for the funeral of the child in which the relatives of the child, the parents of the child, and the fellow employees of the driver who had killed the child sat together, had a meal together, cried together. A friend of mine was involved in it as the employer of the driver, had to give a speech, and he said it was the hardest speech that he had to give in his life because he was crying the whole time, thinking about his own children being killed. But the result was emotional clearance that we don't get in the U.S. But there is a movement in the U.S. today called restorative justice that attempts to bring together the advantages of traditional justice with modern state justice and means bringing together either criminals and victims of crimes or else people involved in a civil dispute such as brothers and sisters in an inheritance dispute 
or divorcing husbands and wives. Any of you who've been through a divorce or inheritance dispute know that the American courts invariably make things worse and the people involved end up hating each other more rather than less. Well, with restorative justice, the goal is to achieve New Guinea-style reconciliation along with the aims of the American court system. That reminds me of a program we did a while ago on restorative justice. Uh, there was a program in Baltimore. They're, they're following a, a Maori model where uh, if something happens, it's an imbalance in society. It's trying to restore the balance. And, and it's the same um, goals, I think. It, people, all the parties meet face-to-face, and you're seeking rehabilitation more than punishment. That's right. And a striking example in, in California, you know, my state, was a case where a man, while out bicycling, was killed by a truck driver. The truck driver was sentenced to prison for manslaughter, and the widow of the dead cyclist met in prison with a truck driver. Both of them agreed to it. They had a wrenching conversation of several hours in which the widow told the driver what it had done to her and her daughter to lose her husband and how every day she thought of her dead husband so that the driver could see that what he had done to a survivor. But conversely, the driver then told the widow his own life story, which was that he had been sexually and physically abused throughout his life. He had just broken his back. He'd run out of painkillers. He was deserted by his girlfriend the night before. And when he went out the next day, he confessed he was so angry that he had intended to kill her husband. So it was a pouring out on his part and pouring out on her part. And she summed it up by saying, forgiving is difficult, but not forgiving is more difficult. So in these cases, the uh, you know strong state which we live with in uh, in in our society um, sort of perhaps gets in the way. There is an instance you write about uh, warfare, where in modern societies you have a strong state which um, frowns upon sanctions uh, individuals seeking retribution and such, cuts down on uh, on at least the frequency of warfare that you have in traditional societies. That's true. State governments declare war and also they sign peace treaties. So, for example, the United States went to war with Japan on December 7, 1941. And while I was growing up, Americans were taught to fear and hate Japanese. And then on August 15, 1945, the American government and the Japanese government um, reached a agreement, and on the next day, if you killed a Japanese, if you had done it two days before, you were praised as a hero, and if you did it two days later, you were condemned as a murderer. So that illustrates how states turn on and turn off war. Of course, modern states with big populations, with 300 million Americans, if there's a war, lots of people are going to get killed, but it's a small fraction of Americans. Whereas with traditional societies, um, without a central authority to turn on and turn off war, um, it often um, becomes chronic and long run, although you can never kill 100,000 people with an atomic bomb. In the long run, just with spears and constant warfare, one can get a high proportional 
death toll. And that shocks many people when they hear of it, but the numbers show it. And in, in these societies, um, you reach back, you, in fact, you recount a, a small war, as you call it, in New Guinea, uh, you're brought up, at least the boys are, brought up in uh, a mindset that it's it's okay to, to kill the other side. You, you, you know, this is what you're brought up to do. I'll tell you what happened the first morning, literally the first morning that I was in New Guinea. Um, I, was, I had flown in the previous day, and I was brought out to a highland village, so I, I was exhausted, went to sleep in the highland village. I woke up the next morning, it was sunlight, I heard voices outside, there were obviously kids playing, so I looked outside to see what was going on, and they were not playing hide-and-seek or hopscotch, they were playing bow and arrow warfare. This was an area where people had been fighting until a few years ago, and the children were still brought up learning how to use bows and arrows. So there they were with these small bows and arrows that couldn't couldn't seriously injure someone. The arrows consisted of grass stalks, which would sting, but they were learning to shoot and they were learning to dodge back and forth. That was practice for war, although wars there had been ended. I think, five years previously. Nearing the end, just a couple of minutes left, uh, I wonder, I don't know if you, you run into the, some of the same people from traditional societies there in New Guinea as you go back again and again. wonder, generally, what do they think of us? Well, what, what do they think of us? It's, it's very varied because New Guineans are varied just as our um, Westerners. Certainly one, one of the first things and is understandably what can they get out of us? Because the reality is that we have lots of stuff that is useful to them. And there, too, let me tell, just tell you a short, funny story. At the end of my first year in New Guinea, I hired New Guineans to work on birds with me, and I paid them. And, and after I paid them, I asked them, so what are you going to do with the money I gave you? Here I'm going to find out what's really valuable in American society as far as New Guineans are concerned. And one of my New Guinean workers said, I'm going to use the money you gave me to buy an umbrella. And my first reaction was, my God, is the best that the United States can offer to the other countries' umbrellas. But then I reflected, this guy is living in an area where the rainfall is 400 inches per year. Yes, an umbrella really is a smart purchase there. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess it's different perspective, isn't it? Yeah. Um, just uh, just uh, about a minute left. I wonder, you know, you you end the book at, a, at another airport, LAX, coming home, and I wonder what are the, what are the top you know couple of lessons you you think we can should learn from traditional societies? Gosh, lessons we can learn from traditional societies. There are so many of them. Um, they include lessons in bringing up children, lessons in staying healthy and not dying of non-communicable diseases, lessons in thinking clearly about danger, lessons about religion. I would sum it up by saying that traditional societies constitute thousands of experiments in how to operate a human society. But all of these traditional societies face the same issues that we do of childhood and old age and danger. And so what I walk away um, um, from discussion of traditional societies with is the message they've tried lots of things and some of those things all of our listeners may find some of those things can work for them just as some of those things have worked for me 
in addition to which traditional society is just fascinating. And even if you don't apply anything of what they do, it's really fascinating to learn about them. Well, it's a fascinating book. The latest book from Jared Diamond is The World Until Yesterday, What Can We Learn from Traditional Societies? newly released in paperback. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Guns, uh, Germs, and Steel, and many other books, professor of uh, geography at uh, UCLA. And uh, Jared Diamond is coming to Utah. The uh, parents uh, sponsored by the uh, Salt Lake City Public Library and King's English Bookshop is Thursday evening, 7 o'clock, in the Salt Lake Downtown Library, free and open to the public. Jared Diamond, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Um, and, of course, you can hear this program again on upr.org, upr.org. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to be talking with Lars Peter Hansen. He's a Utah State University alumnus and one of three Americans recently named as a recipient of the 2013 Nobel Prize for Economics. We'll be talking with him tomorrow on the program about the recent housing bubble and government regulation of markets and other subjects. Hope you'll join us then later in the program tomorrow. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. He's written an interesting new book about Rupert Murdoch and his empire. Those subjects tomorrow on the program. For producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 2. Introducing Feast Cell, Walnut Torpedoes, and Kalamata Olive Torpedoes. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.